Thank you, Linda. And uh, you might not have recognized uh, Matt Nicewanger without all the hair, uh, but that was Matt leading us. Thank you. Um, you might not know Pastor Chris is out for next or this Sunday next because he uh, had back surgery and is recovering. So keep him in your prayers. Uh, I talked to him this morning, and uh, he said uh, he's doing well and healing and hopes to be back with us soon. A little bit of a feedback there. Well, this morning, uh, it's good to be back with you as I've uh, kind of had my six-week hiatus uh, from the pulpit. It's always good to hear from other brothers who come and open up God's Word. Um, but we now we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. And we find ourselves uh, starting a new series uh, within the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which I've uh, borrowed this title from uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, but The Last Days According to Jesus. And here we, of course, are going to find ourselves in deep waters as we begin this six-week study. Uh, while Matthew 24 and 25 are some of the most anticipated Chapters in Matthew. In fact, uh, I've been asked for some time, probably over a year, when are you getting to Matthew 24 and 25? And I would say, well, if you've been around long enough, you know the kind of pace that we're going through Matthew. You can probably figure it out. It'll be a while. Uh, but we are finally here. We are in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And while these, I'm sure for many of you, are, are greatly anticipated, uh, let me also say that they are also some of the most difficult chapters to understand. So we're going to spend a, a good six weeks uh, trying to chew on this text and, and try to understand it the best that we can. And here in this passage, Jesus is assuming the role of a prophet. We've already seen that he is called the prophet uh, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When he came in and his triumphal entry, he has uh, pronounced woes upon the Pharisees and a prophetic word of judgment. He has wept over the city of Jerusalem, much like the prophet Jeremiah. And now he is going to give a prophecy, particularly concerning the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And so in a real sense, we find ourselves this morning in a similar position as the Old Testament saints of old. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Old Testament saints would be reading the prophets and the prophets would be declaring and explaining about the events and the coming of the Messiah. And they would be looking with wonder and, and, and searching the scriptures, carefully seeking, as Peter says, trying to discern how these things would be. What would be the timing of the Christ? What would his, how would he be revealed? And, and what, in what way would his sufferings bring about the glory of the kingdom of God? But they would look through a mirror dimly. They're looking, and in a way that they could not fathom how to actually put all these things together. But for us now, we look back, having been on this side of the cross, having the Gospels, and, and we can look back, we can see the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah 53 and, and the suffering servant who would, will be crushed for the transgressions of his people, and we're like, oh, that is crystal clear. 
now that we have seen it all unfold. Or, or Psalm 22, where David talks about being, uh, uh, having dogs on either side of him and, and not any of his bones being crushed. And all we see, oh, that, is a, that was a, a foreshadowing of the cross. Or even that obscure verse in Genesis 3.15, that the, that the woman will have a child and he will crush the head of the serpent. The Old Testament I had an idea that there was a child to come, but, but how would this take place? Well, we look at it now, so oh, it's really clear. Well, we're in a similar boat when we're looking at the second coming, though. We're similar to those Old Testament saints because we're not looking backwards. Now we're straining to look forward to discern, well, what will be the signs of Jesus' second coming? And when will these things be? And so for this reason, Christians throughout the church age have struggled to piece these things together. It's not to say that we're, we're totally off base, but the reality is, is that we are looking through a mirror dimly. The, the, the forward looking is foggy. We are trying to piece things together. And so for this reason, many Christians have come to, to many different conclusions as to the timing of these things. How will these things play out? And that's not only true for how we interpret, say, the book of Revelation, but also this passage here in Matthew. How do we put these things together? Well, it's my intent, uh, not necessarily to go through all the ways that it has been done, but to try to make my best case, if you will, of, of what does Jesus mean here in Matthew 24 and 25. And I hope that in doing so over the next six weeks or so, I can show us maybe what things we should be dogmatic about and what things we should just hold on loosely. And we should just wait in anticipation for how these things will play out. But that's not to say that we just punt and we plead ignorance or anything like that. I think God's word does give us direction, but, but not in some sense. And I would even say Jesus tells us, you're not going to know the hour or the day. And so any attempt of doing so is probably futile. Well, as we come to Matthew 24, it's essential that we understand the context of the Olivet Discourse. Again, we find Jesus sitting down. We see in verse 3, on the Mount of Olives. This is a new mountain. We, we might even remember back on the Sermon on the Mount. That's a different mount. But oftentimes, significant portions of Matthew are, are found where Jesus is revealing himself or revealing the truth truths about the kingdom while he's sitting on a mountain. We think of the, the Sermon on the Mount. We think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, now we're on the Mount of Olives, which is called now this Olivet Discourse. And if you remember, what, seven weeks ago or more, the events of Matthew 21 through 23, where have these events occurred? They've occurred in the temple court. If you remember, we began uh, with the triumphal entry in chapter 21. That's Palm Sunday. And then we've been stuck on Tuesday for quite some time. Jesus is still in the temple court. It's still Tuesday, now 12 weeks later in this text. But we are still on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus, on this day, has cleansed the temple. Well, that was Monday. He came back. He that on Tuesday contended with the religious leaders over his authority. Who gave you the authority to do this? And he has pronounced judgment upon Israel, her leaders and this temple. It culminates here at the end of, of chapter 23 where, where this impactful scene where Jesus, 
has brought great condemnation upon Israel and woes, if you will. And then he looks upon Israel and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her children under her wings. And you were not willing. What does he say? See, your house is left to you desolate. Some of the most frightening words. The Lord's grace would say, no more. I have left your house desolate. Because you were unwilling to come. Even after these words, the disciples are slow of learning. All this immaculate uh, um, woes, if you will, pronounced upon Israel, their leaders, uh, their houses left to them desolate. They're walking out, much like we do, maybe after a profound sermon. All right, well, what's for lunch today, right? I can, maybe I can make it before the game. They're walking out and they say, hey, Jesus, have you seen these buildings? <laughs> these are amazing. And they start pointing them out, right? You see that? Verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 1, our text. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came. It's as if they have, they, they maybe missed the sermon. They still got their, their cameras wrapped around their necks. We got some great pictures, great selfies, Jesus. Let's get in front of the temple. Have you seen this? You gotta come around here. This is amazing. I imagine this is, you know, my wife and I, we went to Chicago a couple of years ago. We went on a boat tour. And, and it is amazing seeing these great edifices and you're just taking pictures and you're going at it. That's what I imagine the disciples were like. They're slow of learning, aren't they? Slow of learning of the significance of what Jesus has said, what is about to occur this week. And they were, they were just marveling over these buildings. It's interesting, uh, Josephus, you may not know that name, he's an ancient Jewish historian, a contemporary of the disciples around even speaks of Jesus and his crucifixion and the events surrounding Israel he remarks that visitors of the temple now this is Herod's temple this isn't Solomon's temple Solomon's temple has been destroyed the temple's been rebuilt with the edict in Cyrus as Israel came out of Babylon well Herod came and expanded it and, and improved upon it and made it a glorious wonder of the world if you will and he and and Josephus writes that guests coming to the temple would have been stunned by its splendor. He states that the temple uh, was, was plated with gold of great weight. And so when the sun would be rising, it would shine and it would come with fiery splendor, glowing the glory of the sun off of it. He said that coming from a distance as you're going up to Jerusalem, you, would, you could see the temple and it would look like a mountain covered in snow. This is because the, the rock, the stone that was used to build the temple was all white. Now just hear these dimensions. They were 30, each block was 35 feet in length, 11 feet high, and 17 feet in width blocks to build this temple. And though the disciples were in awe of the temple, Jesus says publicly, and we know it's publicly because it's not until verse 3 that the disciples come to him privately. 
publicly where everybody can hear. And he says, do you guys see all these things? Yeah, yeah, those buildings you're talking about? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. Talk about Debbie Downer, right? Person who just ruins the trip. We thought this was going to be a glorious time together. Jesus, goodness, could you at least wait till we left? I mean, they're all, all the people are here. This, these words will soon be the words that actually convict Jesus. It's the main issue, charge that they're going to bring, that he's coming to do a work of sedition and destroy the temple. Jesus says, not one throne or one stone those big boulders, if you will, is going to be left on another. What Jesus do, does here is he makes explicit what has been implicit for some time, that the temple will be destroyed. Now, this is a shocking revelation. Absolutely stunning. And this is why, in verse 3, the disciples come to Jesus in private now. This is what always happens. Jesus says things in public. The disciples, later on, they come and... and and they're alone with Jesus. All right, Jesus, you gotta, you got to fill us in. What are you talking about? When will these things be, Jesus? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They pair two kind of interesting concepts. When will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. And then what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Kind of two-pronged question. Now imagine we were on a tour. Let's say we're at the Capitol, Washington, D.C., and someone were to say, in public, you see all these buildings? <laughs> Not one stone is going to be left upon another. Well, one, you're, you got Homeland Security coming upon you probably pretty quickly. But the same shock is happening here. What would you be saying? This is the end of this nation. If we woke up and those buildings were toppled over, not one stone was left upon another, you would say, this is the end of our country. Whoever came has toppled us over. They have destroyed us. And so for a Jew in that day to think of it that way, oh, if the temple is destroyed, that always meant exile, the end of the nation, the dissolving of our people. Well, the disciples are surely thinking, if this means the end of our nation, then that also must mean the end of the world. Because Israel is the hope of the world. And so they pair these two ideas together. And so we have two questions that we're going to have to keep in mind that, that I think give us guardrails to keep us from falsely Im imposing upon things upon the text that don't need to be there. We need to keep in mind that one, number one question is Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple before their very eyes. Do you see all these things? And he's also addressing the end of the age. That's why these things get really complicated. How does he do both of those? And I'm not going to answer all that today. Today's more the teaser for the rest of the sermons. So you'll come back next week and the week after that. This morning, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 14. Really, we're going to jump down to Jesus' response beginning in verse 4. And what is Jesus going to do? Well, Jesus is going to summarize human history. Really, where I think he's trying to say is from his first coming to his second. That gap of time which we find ourselves in. So there's a sense in which 
Jesus is going to address the events that apply to the disciples right before him and disciples that come after him, including us, and however long the Lord tarries. We've got a gap of time that Jesus is going to summarize human history from the moment of his ascension to his return. And here he details nine signs. Nine signs, we're going to work through them, but nine signs which lead up to the end of the age. But he calls them birth pains. That's why I've entitled this The Beginning of the End. It's not the end. It's just the beginning of the end, if you will. And, and when you think of birth pains, we've got lots of babies in here, mamas who have experienced these, right? It's the beginning of the end, but you don't know exactly when it is. Some of you are really quick. Some of you are really long. That's kind of the point. It's building towards something. They're birth pains. And these birth pains, Jesus say, are characterizing human history until the end of the age. In other words, what Jesus is communicating here in Matthew 24 and 25 is that we are in the last days. We, we tend to think of the last days in terms of the last of the last days, right? But Jesus would say, actually, disciples, you're about to enter them. The last days started with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. A new age had dawned. That's why we have Old Testament and New Testament. And in the prophets, they say, in the latter days, and they're talking about when the Messiah comes. And we, he has come, in the latter days, expand his first and second coming. That's, what he's, that's why he's going to span from the events right in front of them to the end of the age here in these verses. The rest of the apostles do something very similar. The apostle John, in his first letter, 1 John 2, 18, tells us, brothers and sisters, it is the last hour. Now, we hear that and say, well, it's been a long 60 minutes, hasn't it? But that, that 60 minutes has lasted 2,000 years plus. Why? Because there, this is the last age. This is the last period. Peter does the same thing. He actually references the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the Olivet Discourse. And he warns the church of false teachers. He says, our Lord warned you of these in the last days. Why is he warning them? Because Believers he's writing to are in the last days. Paul does it the same thing. The Spirit explicitly says, in the last days. And he goes on and describes much of the things that Jesus does to then tell the church, be on guard. Stay firm in the faith. Why? Because you're in the last days. So if the disciples in the early church and the, the ones receiving these letters are in the last days, well, certainly we are, Right? So here in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is telling us about these times of difficulty, if you will. We hear them, and he even uses the term tribulation. And, and again, this might be somewhere where, where I would differ with some interpretation to say that tribulation is awaiting us in the future. I think Jesus and the apostles say, no, the tribulation's now. And it's not just now, but it extends into the future until Jesus returns. And so for this reason, I don't think the scriptures speak about tribulation as something awaiting us or, or even something that you and I are somehow going to get an ejection plan from, as Jesus is going to say. I, I think the scriptures are preparing us to live in tribulation until he comes back. Remember when Jesus... He's talking to the disciples. This is in John's gospel. 
He's talking about his ascension and his departure and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this to the disciples in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's where we take heart. He is overcome through his death and resurrection. And Jesus here characterizes the last days for us in verses 1 through 14. Kind of a summary before he gets into details. We get the big picture. He's going to step back. Here's the 30-foot view. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to be prepared for. And then next week we dive into specifics. But this characterization of the last days, brothers and sisters, let me hear you. Please hear this. It isn't an invitation to fruitless speculation. That's not what Jesus will... He'll, in fact, tell you to not do that. Don't do that. It's not an invitation to fruitless speculation about the end of the world, but what is it? He tells us this is a call to endurance, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is exactly what Pastor Brian read in Revelation 14, which I would argue Revelation isn't so much about something awaiting us, but is something that characterizes the whole age. And what is that Revelation 14, 12, if you remember? This is a call for endurance of the saints. That's like, man up, buckle up. You're going through this. This is a call to endure, to run the race. And Jesus is saying the same exact thing. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. A call to perseverance this morning. Because the days are evils, brothers and sisters. You and I must endure these days. But we're to take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Here in verses 4 through 14, now we're, we're getting into the meat of the sermon this morning. Verses 4 through 14, Jesus describes the tribulation that we'll experience until the end. But we are not to lose heart, but to endure to the end. And this, is, brothers and sisters, is how Jesus keeps us. We're going to sing at the end of the service, He will hold me fast. Yes, He will. But there are means by which He keeps you. And one means is by His word in warning you of things to come. Later He'll say, See, I have already told you before it happens, so that you are not led astray. And so this morning we are going to heed Jesus' words so that we are not led astray and so that we will persevere. And so with that in mind, I want to spend the rest of our time calling our attention to six essential areas we must persevere by God's grace until the end. Six essential areas we must persevere by God's grace until the end. And the first is we must persevere in faith, Jesus says. Specifically, our faith in Jesus Christ as preached in this gospel. Notice at the end he says, and this gospel, verse 14, of the kingdom, this gospel you're reading, will be proclaimed. And we cannot lose faith in this gospel that reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ by whom we must be saved. We must lay hold of Jesus as he has been revealed in the scriptures so that we're not led astray to put our faith in other 
Messiah figures. Now look in verse 4. Jesus is answering their question, their twofold question. Destruction of the temple and the end of the age. In verse 4, Jesus answered them. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Why? Verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. What does Jesus say? In this time of tribulation, in these birth pains, in this period of time between my first and second coming, till the end of the age, there are going to be false messiahs who are going to come. Some are going to claim to be the Christ. Some are going to claim to be Jesus. And they are going to deceive many people. In the years leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there were several who actually claimed the title of Jewish Messiah. And they sought to lead rebellions against the Roman Empire. And the book of Acts actually mentions two of them. Josephus talks about a lot of them. There were a lot of people who would come in and they basically lead these groups of rebellion, zealots, if you will, to, in, in essence, usher in the kingdom of God. You might remember, this is kind of fun fact, Bible time, uh, Phinehas in the Old Testament. There was, there was a plague in Israel, and there were those who, were, who had, who had, uh, who had basically lived in sin and brought a plague, and Phinehas picks up a spear and out of zeal for the Lord plunges it into another and stops the plague. That's where you get zealots. They're, that's a term referencing that. It's like we're going to take charge and we're going to stop the wrath of God by plunging a spear into the Roman Empire, proverbially speaking. Acts speaks of two of them. There's one, Thutis, in Acts 5, 36. Now, his gathering wasn't too big, but 400 followers, but was stamped out. In Acts 21, 38, we see of one who's called the Egyptian. So you see, they don't come always saying Jesus, but they have these great conquering titles, the Egyptian came, who led 4,000 zealots, Luke tells us. It was these type of things that actually lead to the destruction of the temple and the Roman Empire saying, we've had enough of this, we're, we're stamping you out. And Jesus is already telling them in their time, you've got to watch out for these messianic pretenders. They're going to promise you victory in the kingdom of God if you follow me. In our lifetime, we see this too. And in fact, you can go and you can find like the documented, at least uh, significant uh, um, people who have claimed to be the Messiah. The list is actually disturbingly long. But the one that came up to me, uh, to mind was uh, David Koresh. If you all remember that in the 90s, I remember. In Waco, the Branch Davidians. What was he saying? I'm the Messiah. We need to get ready for the war, right? We got to get ready. That's always it. We got to get ready for the war, right? We got to take them out. And then God's going to usher in his kingdom. And Jesus says that there's going to be these all throughout the age. See that you are not led astray by them, by their phony messages. They're not bringing in the kingdom. They're leading people astray. And so what must we do? How do we make sure that we're not led astray? Well, we persevere in faith, in trusting ourselves to Jesus as he's been revealed to us in the word of God. 
Not looking for him, as Jesus will say, oh, he's out here in the desert. Oh, he's out here in the closet. There will be all these people say, oh, the one we've been looking for, he's here. And you and I will be tempted to be deceived because they'll come and they'll be convincing, Jesus says. Secondly, we must persevere in hope. Persevere in hope. What, where's our hope to be found? In the kingdom to come. Not in the kingdoms of this world, Jesus says. Because what does he go on to say in verses 6 and 8? He says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Meaning, you're going to hear of wars happening and wars that are going to come. But what does he say? See, there it is again, see. Observe, have eyes, have discernment. See that you are not what? Alarmed. Don't be alarmed by this. For this must take place. But note this, the end is not yet. What is Jesus saying? We're not to be alarmed, overly shaken, disturbed by the political and international conflict in the world. Yet as your pastor, you want to know one of my greatest burdens for us is how much we drink from the cable news networks who live and make their living off making sure you stay alarmed about that crisis to come or the crisis already here. Doesn't mean they're not real, but why are we so alarmed? Did we think we were getting an out? Do you think this all happens in all the other countries, but Jesus' words have no meaning for us here today? Be on guard lest you are led astray to invest in your life in a kingdom that's passing away. Don't become enamored with it. Furthermore, he goes on. He says, not only will the world tear itself apart in political conflict, but guess what? The creation itself will be undone. He says, not only do nation will rise against nation, verse 7, and kingdom against kingdom, but there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Luke's account of the, all the discourse, he adds in there pestilences, diseases, plagues, COVID-19. I can't tell you how many people, oh, that's why I, some of your questions were, can we talk about the Lord's return? Because COVID's here. Must be in the end. No, Jesus says it doesn't mean the end. It means this is how it's always been going. In the words of Billy Joel, it's been burning since the world's been turning, right? <laughs> we got to anchor ourselves in the scriptures, brothers and sisters, and not the kooks on TBN. And the latest moon blood and all that junk. They don't know anything. That's what they're telling you. I know nothing. But I will take your money gladly. Jesus says this is what's going to characterize this world. Paul calls them the groans of creation. The whole earth is groaning, longing for the adoption of the sons of God. That's our redemption, the resurrection, because this earth will be resurrected. But until the resurrection occurs, guess what? You're going to have plagues. You're going to have earthquakes. You're going to have class five hurricanes. You're going to have tsunamis. Guys, we might have global warming. Who cares? 
I don't know why we get so upset about it. The world is going to fall apart, Jesus says. It will. In fact, he says it's going to go in a fireball. Maybe that's how it'll happen. I don't know. But stop getting in fights over it. These things are going to happen, and they're going to be like birth pains. Do you see that? What does that mean? They're like contractions. They come in waves. And they build an intensity. Why? Because the earth is falling apart just like your body's falling apart. It's going to break. Now, let me just kind of back off and cool the, cool the jets a little bit. This doesn't lead us in fatalism either, though. We have other texts. This doesn't mean we abandon, oh, you know what, the whole thing's burning down. Who cares? Let's just throw gasoline on the fire and get this over with. That's not what Jesus says to do. No, we continue to be salt and light, preservers in this world. Yet we have a realistic expectation not to be alarmed. When we're seeing all these things. Why? Because we know this world's passing away. Kingdoms will rise and fall, including the kingdom that we are in right now. It will fall one day. I don't want it to, but it will. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says, for this must take place. And one of the reasons for us is so that you won't put your hope in a kingdom that's passing away. That your ultimate hope, that doesn't mean we don't want to be good citizens, don't want to cherish our heritage. We want to do that. I want to preserve this country as long as we possibly can. But we cannot be overly alarmed by the things that are going on. For these things, Jesus says, must take place. As there's divine sovereignty here. Timeline is happening, which we don't get to understand all the mystery in. But Jesus is still on the throne. And he turns the heart of the king like a stream of water, wherever he wills. We must persevere in joy. Let's flip the script a little bit. Although it does get a little more depressing here. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I'm going to get here, but I want you to think persevere in joy. Jesus here in verse 9 does make a shift. The, the signs of the, the, or the beginning of the end signs that he went through, um, false Christs, wars, wars, pestilence, falling of creation, that affects everybody, right? Everybody lives through that, whether you're a Christian or not. Those are more general, but now he gets very specific. Not only that, but they will deliver you. Who's the they? The world, the nations who don't know Christ, the kingdoms of this world. They will deliver you up to tribulation, he says. He's moved now more specifically to the things that pertain to the persecution of the church. That's what he's basically, we'd summarize this. One of the signs of the end of the last days is that the church will be persecuted. And this persecution has happened since the, the ascension of Jesus, and it will continue. You think of Acts 7, where, where Stephen is persecuted by the nation of Israel, and killed and stoned for preaching that God doesn't dwell in temples made by man. Preaching what he had learned from Jesus, and it got him, that was it. Because they were holding on to this kingdom. 
You, you think about the persecutions led by Nero, the Roman Empire during the early church, who, who came and would use Christians as his candles for his dinner meals. And this has continued until today. I, I, I was looking at, uh, at one of the resources, um, kind of a, an annual that census of, of Christian history and, and, uh, by David Bennett and Todd Johnson. And, and they summarize kind of uh, the early church until now this way. In the 200s, think about 200s AD, about 409,000 Christians were killed. 100 years later, in the 300s, it, that century, 2.7 million. In the 400s, it dipped 513,000. Jumping to the 17th century, 1600s, 11 million. In the 1800s, 1.5 million. And in the 1900s, 41 million. This has characterized the whole age. I think recently of the, of the Christians in Iran and Iraq who are running for their lives. They're heading to the hills. Their houses, they're finding marks that are designating them as Nazarenes. So they say, hey, come here. Snuff these people out. And they must flee. And these are just estimates. And so for this reason, Jesus says, verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Why is that the case? Well, no one wants to die, right? We don't want to experience that. And so as the, as the pressure cooker in the world kicks up, if you will, persecution begins to come. They hand you over. Many will fall away in those times because, hey, it's not worth it. I want my life. And here's the sobering reality is that many who fall away, and what else do they do? They betray one another. Hey, I'll tell you whatever you want. I was an insider. And they hate one another. You might be wondering, where's the joy, Chase? Persevere in joy, huh? Is this not how the scriptures exhort us to persevere under trials and tribulation? I think of the apostles in, in, in Acts 5, 41, after they are beaten for preaching Christ, and they, counted, they rejoiced, it says, that they were counted worthy of the sufferings of Christ. They rejoiced in that. That's what Jesus says. They'll hate you, verse 9, for my name's sake. Let it be for Jesus' name's sake that people hate us. Not for any other reason. Let it only be because we come with the gospel. And that should cause us to rejoice that we are counted and have been identified with Jesus. Same thing comes, James. Consider all joy, my friends, when you encounter various trials. Or the writer of Hebrews who, who exalts Christ as the ultimate example. It says, for the joy of the cross, he endured the shame. And we are to follow in his footsteps. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Fourthly, we must persevere in truth. Brothers and sisters, as the world and the culture changes, and, and obviously here in America, we haven't experienced this to, to this degree, but, but we have no promise that it will stay the way it is. But when the culture begins to shift, and it is already shifting, my friends, 
And it is getting harder and harder to identify with us in this room. I just want you to know that. And some of you feel it more than, than probably I do, because you're out in the world more. But it is coming. And what will happen, verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Here's what will happen. Hey, guess what? I know how we can side with the world and be Christians too. That's what these false prophets are. Hey, I've actually found out that the church, this is how they all are. Every book you read, every seminar you listen to, every YouTube video, everybody else. Hey, guess what? For the last 2,000 years, the church has been wrong. But I know how to correct it. And it sounds like, oh yeah, who would buy into that? Many. Many people buy into that. And it's happening. And we are told to stay aware because many will arise and lead many astray. Some of you, no doubt, will be led astray. Because they're deceptive. They don't come in and say, I'm, I'm a false prophet. Just want you to know, full disclosure. They don't do that. They come with words, eloquence. Let me show you in the scriptures. And I just want you to know, I've been, I've been reading a few books on, on some matters and culture, and here's, here's the commonality. Um, everything you've been told is wrong. And let me find some really obscure examples in church history where it was done right, and, and, and this has been done in some place that you've never been, and it's where real Christianity exists, and we can do this here. No, don't buy into it. Got to move on. Persevere in love. So yes, we must be vigilant on the truth side. We must stay anchored to God's word. But notice, Jesus goes to the next tier and talks about love. He says, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased. Has not lawlessness increased in our nation? Lawlessness will increase. And what will be the result? The love of many will grow cold. Now, now he's talking about in the church. He's warning us of these afflictions that are going to happen. And that is exactly what I see going on in our, our churches these days. We are struggling. And it is hard. We are, we are, we are literally feeling the ground beneath our, our feet shifting. And, and we're trying to navigate where the next crack's going. And here's where the temptation is. We begin seeing all this lawlessness, even, even things in the church disturbing things, people we trusted who fall, turn their back on the faith. All these things begin to happen and guess what happens? You become cynical. And now you start looking at the very people in this room and you're wondering, is that a friend of mine or is that a foe? Have they crossed over to the dark side and are they hiding it from me? Are they really, maybe they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. And you begin to just keep drinking the filth on the internet that's stirring up all that and, and telling you, guess what? We, we got this clip of so-and-so and they're, they're really secretly here to undermine the church and we've done all this and they start bringing in all these things and you begin to find that your love starts growing cold. Jesus says, endure in love. Persevere in love. That means you've got to fight for it. You've got to believe the best about your brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean, yeah, there's going to be some who are going to fall. 
We'll deal with that when they fall. I'm kind of getting off on uh, a tangent here, but there's a movie, a Tom, um, Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report. And guess what they tried to do? They basically had, had figured out how to stop people uh, before they committed the crime. And then, of course, Tom Cruise is able to get around the system and save people and get their freedom, and you're still innocent till proven guilty. I see in the church, we're, we're somehow thinking we're going to stop people before they commit the crime, and we're hacking them down before they even, even if they're not even going there. And I understand we're scared, we're struggling, we're walking on eggshells. How, how do we navigate this new territory that we're in? And we got our, holster, our guns pulled and we got them, safety's off, and some of us are just do, 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 do. anything that moves. We can't. Jesus is warning us that this will be a temptation during this time. You, you can't lose your love. Sixthly and finally, persevere in mission. All these things are kind of negative, and then he ends on a positive. He says, but the one who endures to the end, positive, will be saved. So Jesus just says, I've just told you all the landmines. Told you where they are. So don't go running through the field oblivious. Be looking for the mines. But he who endures the end won't get blown up. He who endures the end will be saved. But he gives us this positive note. Despite all the trouble that you're going to see and the heartache that we're certainly going to see when loved ones fall away, betray us, all these things begin to happen, even the struggles in our own heart. Jesus gives us this word of hope, and he says, but this gospel, which we, I have entrusted you with, the gospel of the kingdom, guess what? It will be proclaimed in the whole earth as a witness to all the nations. All this trial, all this tribulation, all this killing, all this will not stop the gospel from going forth and the kingdom being ushered in. We won't be able to stop it. Sounds like Jesus in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You didn't realize you're going through hell to get there, right? That's what he's saying. Hell's fury is going to turn on God's creation and particularly God's people. And Jesus is saying, you better have a heads up. None of you are exempt. Endure. And don't lose sight of the missions. Take heart, my friends, Jesus says. I've overcome the world. Oh, that, that phrase maybe I hope just becomes a little bit more sweet to you. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've won. And so for this reason, we must endure and bearing witness to this gospel of salvation in Jesus' name. And brothers and sisters, we can't lose focus on the mission. You can just see it. All this inner turmoil, and Jesus says, endure, get out of it. Mission. Mission. Jesus says the mission will be accomplished and then what? Then the end will come. It's a lot of vagueness in that last verse, right? <laughs> he doesn't give us a timeline. He just says here's what's going to happen. 
As we close here, let me ask you, do you want to be part of something that won't fail? Do you want to be an heir of a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Do you want to be one who, whose life cannot be threatened by death? Turn from your rebellious ways. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Follow him all the days of your life. And he says, you will be saved. You'll be saved. That end, let's pray. And then let's sing, he will hold me fast, right? He will hold me fast. Heavenly Father, we do come to you in Jesus' name. The only name by which any of us can be saved. Our only hope in this world. For Lord, we look into this world and is devils filled. Lord, keep us. Keep us anchored in your truth. Keep us anchored in your love. And Lord, in doing so, may we not love our lives even unto death. And like you who died and rose again, we too will conquer. We too will conquer. But Lord, we ask, we know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, we do pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sit.